It's beginning to look a lot like that holiday season, which means it's that time of the year where you start making a list and checking it twice and realise that you, your friends and family have got way too much crap in your lives. So this festive season, gift yourself or someone you love a monthly or annual subscription to the Storymakers Institute, your front row pass to the world's most intriguing storytellers. Receive new episodes of the show every week and your own premium feed with extended full-length episodes only for paid subscribers. To set up your subscription, just visit thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com forward slash subscribe. Happy holidays. Hi there and welcome to the Storymakers Institute, your front row pass to the world's most intriguing storytellers. And for our final episode this season, this week on the Storymakers Institute, say hello to writer Avram Elpert. He's written a new book called The Good Enough Life, where he argues the case that no one truly benefits from a world oriented towards greatness. But Avram reveals in this new book how another way of life is possible from this competitive social order, a good enough life for all. So for our final episode this season, I sit down with Avram to dissect this visionary and provocative book. Can we really cultivate a good enough life for all instead of tearing ourselves apart in the race to the top of the social, cultural, creative and political pyramid? Find out in this week's episode of the Storymakers Institute. I've just finished reading uh, your book, The Good Enough Life, which has been enthralling me over the last few weeks, including the extraordinary uh, appendix that sits at the back of the uh, <laughs> of the book, which uh, kind of provides a lifetime supply worth of uh, additional follow up reading. But uh, welcome to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for thanks for reading uh, and for having me. And a pleasure to be here. One of the things that this uh, this tome works its way through is this notion of the good enough life and the modern pursuit of greatness. And I know there's probably a historical pursuit of greatness, which we can explore as well too. But in the context of the Storymakers Institute, I was really interested to chat to you today about the pitfalls of pursuing greatness in the context of creativity and storytelling. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And it's really nice to talk about this through the idea of story making and storytelling, because a lot of the book really is about a story that we've told ourselves, right? We've sort of, as a society consciously or unconsciously, and as individuals kind of more or less aware, we tell this story that if we make a world where we encourage people to try to be the best, to be the most talented, to win the most rewards and awards and be on the bestseller list and so on and so forth, that this will benefit everybody, right? So if we kind of push in and try to get the most talented uh, uh, and encourage them to write more and more and more, this will create a thriving culture where we'll have access to all this great talent and we'll be inspired by it. And we ourselves may not contribute or produce, or we may sometimes feel inadequate, um, but we'll still get to kind of watch these wonderful people on the stage or see their movies or uh, read their novels and, and, and see the stories that, that they make and that they tell. And there is some truth to this story, right? I mean, I think any Swifty right now could tell you very clearly that there's something amazing that happens when really talented people have a lot of resources and, and put on amazing shows. I, I, am, I haven't been, but I'm told that this was really quite, quite special events. And so what I would like to see, or you know, kind of the idea behind the good enough life, is not that we would have less talent uh, or, or less interesting things, but actually we'd have more. We'd have just a greater democracy of stories being told um, and enunciated and spread and, and have the 
time and space to really engage with each other uh, and appreciate our, our diversity and, and complexity. So again, it's, it's, I think in one level, there's just a broad cultural story. And then there's this kind of way that it impacts us individually. What do you think is propping up greatness? There are so many things. I, I, I try to avoid monocausal explanations. I usually think things have many roots and, and paths, but certainly there's a few prominent ones I think that we can we can point at. One is going to be uh, the economy, uh, right? It's a way that our economy functions such that um, in countries, including Australia, which has a stronger social democratic net than the United States where I come from. But nevertheless, we see that fraying. We see I've been here the last few days listening to reports on the cost of housing rising and you know just how difficult it is to, to pay the rent. And so you start to have this narrative where if you are not the best and you are not on the best sellers list and you are not selling out your concerts, right? You actually, it's true. And so, right, you cannot make enough uh, to do the kind of basic functions um, live a kind of decent life where you have housing and access to your friends and family and the services that you might need. Um, so there's there's that side of it. There's a technological aspect um, that's been well well mapped by other scholars. And it's very simple, right? It, once upon a time, uh, if you were an opera singer in the you know 19th century or something, you had to only go to where you could be, right? You couldn't fly around the world. Uh, you could move, right? But you couldn't be in so many places so quickly. Um, and you couldn't be recorded, right? So then you couldn't kind of dominate the sales in other places. And so there was kind of greater uh, diversity. When you have technology, when you can move places more quickly and when you can reproduce uh, sounds more easily and you can just on your computer get anything all the time, it's easier to have a few people uh, dominate the market. And so we see this increasingly um, with people like uh, Taylor Swift or Beyonce, that they're able to kind of capitalize on, on global markets. And it, it also makes new things available, like K-pop is suddenly in, in all sorts of countries around the world. But you don't have, a, um, you still have a few kind of bestsellers there. And then I think you have a longstanding human um, fascination with, with status and with kind of, you know, wanting to be atop a hierarchy. I don't think this is our only drive as human beings. I don't think it's our primary drive, but it's certainly something that we all have and, and experience and we want recognition and we want to be esteemed and we want to be loved and we, we want the kind of power that comes with that. Again, not everybody and again, not all the time, but that certainly drives a, a lot of the desire to, to be heard and to be seen. Mm. One of the things you talk about in this pursuit of power and greatness, because I think there's, they certainly uh, sit nicely together as two kind of concepts, um, is the notion of material as well as positional power. Do you want to unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting distinction. It goes back, you can find it in Aristotle and I'm sure in other people, but the person who really kind of gave us a modern version of this was an economist named Fred Hirsch. And Hirsch had this uh, a very, sim in the 1970s, he had this really kind of elegant point, which was that, you know, we can increase material prosperity, right? We can print more money, uh, we can grow more crops, uh, we can build more houses. Um, and as you know, we can in theory kind of distribute those more and more evenly, but we can't actually increase the amount of attention that somebody has, right? We can increase the amount of limited resources. So even if you have lots of housing, maybe only some of it is in an urban core or has a beautiful view or something like this. And these are what Hirsch called positional goods. And so material goods can kind of increase and can be somewhat equal, but positional goods are of their very nature limited. And so the, the trouble that Hirsch diagnosed, and that I, I'm very interested in, in in our present time, is that when you have 
um, a scramble for positional goods, right? So if everybody wants to have the attention of everybody else, or if everybody wants the most beautiful view from their apartment, which of course a lot of people do, that starts to put pressure on the material goods. And so how do you kind of determine um, who gets the positional goods? Well, sometimes it's going to be the person who has the most material goods, right? So who has the most access to power, especially in a country like the United States where I come from? But again, not limited there, um, political power becomes distributed by material goods. And the values and the interests of the wealthy come to dominate increasingly You know what types of policies get advanced. And there were some interesting studies done in the United States about a decade ago that showed this quite clearly. And the assumption was that actually this was limited to the US. This had to do with our kind of unique uh, campaign funding structure and, and the way that it had been privatized. But in the last few years, those uh, results have been replicated in countries like Norway and in Germany and places you, you might not expect, where it does turn out again that the, it, because of access to power, even if it's not money per se that you're giving out, but maybe it's threatening a politician and saying, well, if you don't do this policy I'm interested in, I'm going to move my factory to this other town or I'm going to move it to Taiwan or what it might be, your interests wind up having more prevalence and more power. And so policy tends to follow that. So again, having that material good, having those excess material resources affects your positional power, allows you to have more positional power. And these things kind of go back and forth into each other um, in a way that is generally very difficult for society and in a way that Hirsch didn't always have an answer for. And at the end of his book, he said, look, we need a new morality. We need a new way of understanding who deserves position and, and what you know kind of a positional democracy would look like. And that is some of what I tried to do with this idea of a good enough life um, was understanding how everyone could have some slice, right? Some people might still have a little more. We can't have this perfect world. Um, but we could try to think about having a good enough amount of position and voice for for as many people as possible. And do you think that's a, a kind of, that ideal could be a natural extension of the the current priorities and the conversations happening around equality and equity, particularly within a kind of context of the creation of culture? Yeah. I mean, I, I, that would be the hope. Um, and I, I think that, you know, as, as you kind of think more broadly about who has kind of access or, or power or a voice, right, that it would follow. What we see so far as you have the sort of democratization of culture that's enabled by the internet is it tends to still follow these same patterns, right? So that if you look at Instagram influencers or the, you know, the kind of people who get the most likes or views on Instagram, there's a 1% that kind of emerges once again. Um, I wouldn't say naturally emerges, a lot of that has to do with kind of algorithms and advertising, but there's a way in which uh, the, the, we reproduce the kind of inequalities in material life in, in cultural life. And if we don't kind of think clearly about why that's the case, if we want that to be the case, what it would look like to change that, that, that does happen. Um, None of that's to say that, again, there are not interesting things that are just happening because we have so much more access and people can get their, their voices uh, out there. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of theorist of games and digital culture called Sitai Nagoyan, um, and he talks about how, you know, if you are on Twitter and you get uh, one like on your post, uh, it just seems like, you know, why even bother posting? It's sort of meaningless. But when you're in a classroom and there's 20 students there and you realize that one of them really gets it, like one student there really has like had a profound connection with you're saying that feel, you feel that that's kind of meaningful. Um, and he's interested in, you know, can we reproduce that? Is there a way to think differently about that one? Like, um, is it not possible? You know, and, and what would it mean 
individually for us to kind of appreciate, to tell ourselves a different story. Okay, I got that one, like I reached somebody that was meaningful, uh, but also what might it mean culturally to ask, should it be so much about metrics and numbers? And um, should we be, again, pushing resources and funneling money into influencers just based on whether or not we think, you know, advertisers can reach more people because these people have a greater influence? Is that good for us? Is that the kind of world we want to live in? Is that creating the kinds of uh, equity and quality and justice that we're interested in? And, you know, how can we move towards that? You know, digital culture is a little bit outside my uh, expertise, but I find these, you know, I, I wish I knew more because I think it is really such an important part of, um, you know, where, where the world is going and, and, and what these kinds of equitable questions will look like in the future. I wonder sometimes whether it's not only just about moving the 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 positions on the on the on the chessboard, but it's also about actually just knocking the chessboard off entirely and and kind of revisioning uh, what might be a better way to exist as a community as a global society and just start again. And what principles would you use in order to create that society? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think it's not a rather than letting technology guide that exactly yeah for us yeah technology that that right of course is backed by particular commercial and and economic interests and. I wish that there was a way that, you know, one, I think it's, you know, one mind could do both kind of practical and, and ethical things. And I meet sometimes these people who can do that. And I'm just so impressed with them. But I'm I'm really like, I'm more, I think, kind of, at least the work I did in this book was really much more about what is the ethical framework? What is the story that we could tell ourselves to reimagine this? Um, hoping that at some point, maybe I could yeah work with someone or, or keep being part of a broader movement that would kind of do the the nitty gritty and the details and the programming and the you know the data that that you really need, but but you know the the idea the story that I wanted to tell ourselves if we were to overturn the chess table and and kind of rebuild the game and and what would it look like uh, would be this idea of good enough that I think is meant to be um, not a diminution I think it can sound like that a little bit like you know I don't know. Um, what do you think of that that person's work? Well, you know, it's good enough. Like we can we can deal with it. It's fine. But I mean, in a much more positive sense. I, I mean, at some level, I do mean we should probably. All work it also it. feels hopeful. It, yeah. It, yeah. Good. Okay. Yeah. Because I think I sometimes get a bit of a response that just sort of says, ah, whatever, good <laughs> enough. No, I, I do mean you know, good enough both as really being adequate um, and and sufficient, but also really being good. Like good is part of it, and being enough is part of it. Um, and not being perfect is part of it. Like there is something of that that flaw in it. And so again, if we're to imagine, you know, what kind of cultural world do do we want to live in? Nobody. I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of people who you know secretly late at night will say, "Yeah, I, I really hate the Beatles," or "I really hate Beyonce." Right? Like, I mean, nobody wants to kind of say this, but actually, this is the case. Right? Nobody likes everything. Uh, and so the point of kind of having nothing is perfect. Nothing is really like this. You know, end of all possible. Uh, uh, wonderful works. And so I think there are other things that we might think about than just sort of, you know, broad metrics of perfection and think a lot about what is the, the world and how do we get our values in into our uh, cultural systems? I would also say too that, um, you know, we, we know that, 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 and it might be more than this right now, but we certainly know that at least at a minimum 1.7 earths are needed to sustain our current systems. So in a way, good enough is the only way that uh, we're kind of going to get through whatever we need to kind of get through during this kind of big transitional moment. Um, and I'd say probably as a creative individual, as creative individuals, and just as as humans, we're probably extended to the point 
of our the the end of our capacity when you look at all of the varying aspects of things that we need to achieve in any one given day and all of the demands and and the the requirements of a digital life as well as a physical life some of those two things we've been talking about um, it does feel like in emerging post kind of pandemic that uh, a lot of people are really extended right now almost to the sort of ends of their capacity uh, it's certainly something I feel and something that you know, many of the many of my colleagues talk about quite a lot. Um, so for me, at least, anyway, this sort of notion of the good enough life seems to connect with this sense of, okay, well, maybe there's a few things that are kind of uh, that, that can be connected here. Um, so far as the broader environmental movement, as well as a, a human movement towards um, a more I'm not going to use the word sustainable, but it, but certainly a more um, a life that has the potential for that, at least anyway. Yeah, no, thanks for making those connections because I think that was really important to me in trying to think about the good enough life as a, as a broad idea, as a story that we could really tell ourselves um, was that, yes, we are burnt out and nature is burnt out and our societies are burnt out. Um, and yet we keep telling ourselves this story that, well, we just have to work a little harder and push a little bit more and then we'll get there. And what we're really saying when we say that is some people need to work a little bit hard, right? This is kind of idea of a, of a talented elite who are going to kind of push through and we should try to be part of that. And if that happens, then they're going to work out the technological fixes for climate change. We don't really need to worry about it. They're going to work out the technocratic fixes for our politics. We don't really need to worry about it. And as we disburden ourselves of these kinds of things, as we sort of say, well, someone else can, can do this work for us, we actually lose much more, right? We lose the sense of our voice in politics. We lose the sense of our ability to uh, affect climate uh, and, and the ways in which our, our actions and our politics and our voting can actually be important parts of the transformation, our protests, our demonstrations, um, that these things will not happen because some great few come along to save us, but only because the good enough many as part of their lives where they don't have to do everything all the time, but can be part of communities, can contribute something, can contribute their creativity, their time, their voice, um, but also live their, their own lives in, in, in meaningful and, and straightforward ways with the things they care about. You know, we, we, there are so many people who are excluded from the, the world right now, from the ability to kind of make these types of decisions that we could all do a little bit less if, if more of us were involved. I wonder if there's that there's a story that perhaps also underpins this of the notion of the great saviour that that might come and sort of save us. I know that's particularly strong in certain religious contexts, but I wonder why inaction, global inaction on certain really big, um, obviously environmental crises of our time, is partially because we're hoping for or we're expecting that someone else, someone grand, someone large, a savior is going to come and uh, and and solve our problems for us. Yeah, no, and it's it's really interesting when you look at the details of the histories of even these religious movements or political movements that were very successful. They always have a figurehead, you know, that's sort of attached to them, and um, whether that's a kind of Jesus figure or in the U.S. context again, the uh, civil rights, you have a kind of Martin Luther King figure. But when you start to look into the details of the histories of these movements, how did the word spread, right? How, how did the gospel spread or, or how did politics change? How did the social movement succeed? It wasn't because of one great savior. It was because of a lot of people who were really um, there and invested and interested in spreading the message uh, and making it happen. And so again, in, in the civil rights context, in the United States, there's a whole background. Martin Luther King doesn't come out of nowhere and suddenly say, let's have civil rights. There are decades 
uh, century preceding him of people kind of coming out of uh, enslavement and saying, we still need more, like we're, this isn't really the end of, of discrimination, oppression, we need much more. And he was only able to have the success that he has because of this century preceding him. And because a lot of women um, got together with their neighbors and said, hey, I, this isn't enough. I don't want to uh, be discriminated against. I don't want to ride on the back of the bus. I don't want to just have to clean the, this this uh, woman's home anymore. I want to have my own life and my own meaning. And um, so he would come, you know, so King would kind of come up through the same schools and the same organizing systems as these people. And now when we look back, we sort of remember him. And now maybe we wish, oh, if only the climate movement had a, figure but you see right again you see there are, there are people like this you have your Greta Thunbergs who are, who are special and, and wonderful in many ways and I don't mean to take anything away from them but they're only able to really make an impact because so many other people get involved and I think the more that we understand that and the more that we think it does matter if all of us get out there it does matter if all of us change a bit about our, our lifestyle it, it does matter if all of us educate ourselves um both in terms of what we can do on our own and then what we can do infrastructurally, socially, situationally, uh, because it can't be left up to us individually at the end of the day to either be the savior or to just you know turn off our lights uh, a little more often. It's not enough. It won't add up, right? You do need broader uh, policies to, to understand and, and think about these things. So I think, yeah, I mean, sorry to come back to your to your point, I don't think the stories of saviors are, are going to help us, uh, if we, especially if we don't know what to do with them, especially if we don't understand that even if really inspirational and wonderful people come along, it still requires all of us to make our contributions and be part of something and, and, and not just kind of give over ourselves to it or, or hope that they'll appear. Mm. Interesting you mention particular individuals. And, and, I, and I think about some of the, the people that that in a Western context, we might hold up on a pedestal as being great or have offered a, a greater contribution to society than, than others. In a, in a scientific context, you might look at someone like a, well, there's so many, but you know, an Einstein comes to mind. You talk about that in the Good Enough Life book, but someone like a Mozart, for instance, who happened to have the conditions and the skill in order to thrive and produce at a level and, and an amount that enabled him to kind of hold his place within the history book. So how do you how do you tackle le- legacy in the context of the good enough life and in particular the structures that have enabled those people because i don't necessarily think that those st- those same structures exist today mm-hmm. i think it's a very interesting question because at some level it's nice when we all have cultural touchstones right it's nice when people can kind of share, if I say the name Gandhi or Einstein or, or Mozart, right? We kind of know this and we kind of understand what that means. And we can go into the details and, and so forth. But um, there is something, and I think this speaks to one of your other questions about, you know, why do we seek this? There, there is something communal about having figures who we can talk about and, and go to and rely on. Um, and I, I find that actually a very difficult thing for which I don't have a, uh, a great answer. Um, you know, how do you, how do you deal with the, the pleasantness of shorthand and the pleasantness of just starting to be able to refer to people that we all kind of think, oh, wow, what an amazing singer, thinker, so forth. Um, and, and I think that does mean some something. Uh, at the same time, again, I worry that, you know, when that, that nicety overwhelms um, so many other things and so many other possibilities. So it is possible that simply, again, technological change has so far increased, I think, you know, kind of uh, made it more that word spreads and ideas spread, and it's easier to kind of 
get texts and songs in different places. So it may decrease the um, number of names that we sort of recognize or know, or the number of canons. It's possible those will sort of globalize a little bit. I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, at the same time, I do think that technological change doesn't happen on its own, right? That there are ways in which we can uh, actually engage and transform uh, and think about what we would would like to make possible. And again, I think podcasts are one of the most interesting spaces where you see this because I've, I've talked about this book to um, big audiences, little audiences, I think sometimes a YouTube channel that only one person has watched. And it's always really meaningful. Like it's always really quite fun, even if it's just for me and, and the other person talking and, and whoever winds up watching. Um, I quite I quite like that. And I think we should grow and, and develop that. And, you know, I, I don't I don't know. In the future, you know, Andy Warhol very famously said, right, in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. And sometimes I think actually that's a really beautiful idea of a good mm. enough life is that everyone kind of gets their, really gets their 15 minutes. And maybe some people get 34, yeah, you know, yeah. something. Some people get a little more, but not not like all the time for the rest of the time. So I think we all get 15, but uh, a few people get the, the rest of their lives. It'd be really interesting to kind of think, what would it be like if we all had our kind of moments um, as part of a, a good enough life? I and what, what would you choose to, you know, mm. What would you choose to, you know, to have your 15 minutes of fame about <laughs> right. too? I think people would be much more selective by what they put out there if they knew That's that they, this was their particular moment and their moment for cultural legacy. Right. Um, it's an interesting thought because yeah. I think we're now just so disposable um, cultural work, cultural ideas um, that that are, that are kind of treated in much more of a transient way now. We move, you know, we make them, we move on uh, rather than something that um, that necessarily we feel is going to exist for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. I'm not sure, in fact, you know, whether, you know, say the great composers were thinking about their legacy either, but I think the conditions were right enough for them to have the time and space to focus on one particular pursuit. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And I, I don't know the history of classical music well enough to say to say much um, about it. I suppose I, I know a little bit more about kind of um, literature and when you look at like the history of the romantic poets and the, the kind of people we remember today, the Keats or the Wordsworth or, or so forth, there has been some interesting studies. I cannot remember off the top of my head the name of the authors, but there were at the time people as famous as the authors we remember now, and we don't remember their names. I don't remember their names. Um, and if you trace the kind of legacy, it is very hard to find a qualitative difference in the, the poetry itself. Um, what you tend to find is that those people either had a bit more money or a publisher who had a bit more money or a society that grew up around them or kind of people who carried their message on or anthologized their poetry or so on and so forth. Um, so there are certainly ways in which we pick out these kind of few names and, and we forget uh, the rich culture around them that, that made it all possible. And I think it's true also when you think about, even today, if, if you were to think about uh, either things that you think are really good or really kind of bad and poppy uh, in either case, you know, uh, not sort of judging the quality or, or the durability of it, but just that uh, these things happen because of ecosystems, right? So if there is uh, uh, one kind of famous artist who uh, arises uh, through the ranks, 
um, it's because there was a gallery system that flourished because a lot of other artists were struggling to get into it or were teaching classes or were paying for their MFA degrees um, or were working as galleries or working as assistants for that artist as they kind of tried to make their own name. Um, there's an artist named Greg Gillette calls this the dark matter of the art world. Uh, and, you know, you sort of see the bright stars, but actually 99%, right? The, uh, I don't know what it is, but so much of the universe, right, is is actually this dark matter that you you don't actually see. Um, and I think that's a really important point is that maybe we can't figure this out, right? Maybe we do just have a cultural system where some people kind of rise up and that gives us these shared names and these shared things of understanding and some people get lost along the way or they develop subcultures or, you know, kind of fan groups or other things where they, we find them. Um, I don't think that's the case, but even if it were, we should at least acknowledge that, right? We should at least acknowledge that these people, yes, they've gotten the credit and the recognition. Yes, they're extremely talented, but so many other people were. And the fact that they kind of rose up through the ecosystem and other people didn't, doesn't mean they should get everything all the time, all the attention, all the rewards. And we should ignore this whole thriving world around them and let those people kind of um, fall out. Yeah, no, it doesn't. And it doesn't mean that those people that aren't acknowledged or recognized doesn't mean that they don't have the talent. It's just that for for, for the circumstances, exactly. for luck, for for the structures that exist within that particular environment, that someone else was was chosen. And I just I wanted to refer exactly. to a book that you referred to in the Good Enough Life, and I'm going to destroy this um, surname. So please correct me, William. Deresiewicz. How did I go with that? I'm close. Yeah, it's Polish. <laughs> I don't. I think it's Deresiewicz, but I I wouldn't stake my uh, reputation on it. William Deresiewicz, who who argues in his book the death of the artist, um, the system yet again rewards the few and leaves the rest to fight for scraps. It's uh, virality or bust, stardom or oblivion. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Storymakers Institute. And what a fascinating rumination to close out the year. If you want to hear the full episode, you've got to head to our website, thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com, become a paid subscriber and gain access to the full-length conversation between myself and Avram. And during the upcoming festive sojourn, we're going to be sending paid subscribers to the Storymakers Institute, an exclusive mix of weekly holiday delights, including recommendations for holiday season reading, listening, and browsing. Plus, we're also going to be dipping into the archives to bring you some highlights from our 2021 Digital Summit that you can't find anywhere else. But right now, from the team at the Storymakers Institute, wishing you all the very best for the festive season ahead.